welcome to Faith Point, the podcast ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Prescott Valley with Senior Pastor Carol Eldreth. Our goal is to allow our faith to intersect with real life. So let's join Pastor Carol today as he shares with us from God's Word. Fifty years ago, Barb and I said I do at First, Southern ba- First Baptist Church of Lemon Grove, California, and a, a good friend of ours uh, sang at our, at our wedding, and for the life of me, I have no idea what he sang to this day. But uh, we had, he had been the leader of a group called Free People um, that uh, we were, that I was traveling with uh, at Cal Baptist at that time. And so that was a blessing. And then 25 years ago, this Sunday, today, um, I had come across a song that was rather new at that time. And I kind of made it our song. And you've put up with me for nine years and I'll ask for your indulgence for another year and then um, a verse that I that I that I've adopted as my verse for my wife is Song of Solomon that's chapter 7 verse 6 in the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon and there it says oh how beautiful you are how pleasing my love how full of delights. And when I think about Barb, I, I go over that verse time and time again when I'm driving around or I'm sitting in my office when I'm thinking about her. And so uh, for another year, I want to be able to share this song with my beautiful, delightful wife. And the sun does not appear I, I will be here If in the dark we lose sight of love Hold my hand and have no fear I, I will be like being quiet when you need to speak your mind I will listen and I will be here when the laughter turns to crying through the winning losing and trying we'll be together I will be here Tomorrow morning when you wake up and the future isn't clear, I, 
Are made for change. Our lifetimes are made for years. I, I will be here. I will be here. You can cry on my shoulder when the mirror tells us we're older. I will hold you and I will be here to watch you grow in beauty and tell you all the things you are to me. I will be here. I will be true to the promise I have made to and to the one who gave you to me. I, I will be As seasons are made for change, our lifetimes are made for years. I, I will be here, we'll be together, and I will be Thank you. Would you bow on your heads in word of prayer with me? Father, now we want to tell you we love you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray that he would be evident in our hearts and in our lives and that our lives would reflect his glory. Speak to us today through your spirit, using your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to take out your Bibles. Find the book of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> if you don't know where 1 Corinthians is, just start opening. And when you get to 2 Corinthians, back up one book. Then you'll be there. We're about halfway through 1 Corinthians. We're going through just the whole book, uh, one section at a time. And so we've still got a ways to go. But we're about halfway there right now. And this morning, we're talking about what every marriage needs. And you think, boy, you must have really worked hard to make that happen on your anniversary weekend. And actually, I didn't. I, I'm not that smart to figure that out. I, um, I just, we started going through last year, 1 Corinthians. And, <clears throat> and then as I was laying out the, the, the sermons for this 
for this section of the year, this part of the year here, um, that's just where it fell. This is this is this was not a this wasn't a Pastor Terrell thing. That was just a God thing uh, that made that happen, I suppose. But today we're talking about what every marriage needs um, in chapter seven, <clears throat> and and Paul spends two chapters talking about. Uh, sexual propriety or impropriety, uh, if you will, to those who, whose moral choices uh, do not necessarily reflect or reflect at all biblical values and, and, and what God would say about, about our, our, our sexuality. And, and so um, in this chapter, he is, he is kind of changing direction a little bit. He's not talking about what happens outside of marriage uh, that is outside of God's will uh, sexually, but now he's talking about inside of the marriage, what needs to be taking place uh, it, when it comes to marriage. And, and so he begins by saying in verse 1 here of chapter 7, he says, I, now, for what, uh, for the, now for the matters you wrote about. And and we think, okay, what, what did the church write to him about? And so apparently, <clears throat> Paul and the church at Corinth uh, had some conversation, had, had correspondence going on between them, and we don't know, we don't have those letters. And so we don't know exactly what they say, but reading what he writes about in these letters gives us an idea of what some of it might have been about. So now he's referring to something that we don't get to read. We don't have that, those letters, but we do have First and Second Corinthians. And so here he's talking about that. And so now uh, he goes on to say in chapter 7, verse 1, and I'm going to switch translations real quickly from the New International Version to the, the New um, American Standard for just a moment here. It says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And we think, why is that even in the Bible? What, you know, what's, <clears throat> why, why is that important to be there? Now, some translations, uh, including NIV, say it's good for a man not to marry a woman. They're not to get married at all. But that's not exactly what the Greek says. The Greek is, is much, the NASU is, is very much in, in line with what the Greek actually says. And it really, it just means not to touch a woman. And so that's what he was, that's what Paul was talking about. And when we read that and we wonder about that, it is one of those First Corinthians say, those Corinthians sayings rather. Remember, uh, the church is in the city of Corinth and the city of Corinth has all kinds of philosophers and, and intellectuals they have the Parthenon there and, and people love to go listen to those things and they had all these pithy sayings and all these things that were that were just kind of you know given to the, the Corinthians and, and they were phrases that they would use not necessarily that they were true but that's what they were hearing all the time and that's what Paul is doing. Paul is taking off on what they were hearing. They were hearing from those intellectuals and those who, who seemed to want to be in charge of everything, saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman. 
And, and so he's going to start at that point. He's going to say, okay, this is what you're hearing, and now let's get to what the Bible says about it. He did the same thing last chapter. He said, he took a Corinthian saying, remember we talked about that, and he said, he said you know, nothing is unlawful to me, and, and food is for the stomach. And those, that food is for the stomach was a Corinthian saying. That wasn't necessarily what, what God had been teaching and wanted Paul to teach, but he said, let's start at that point and let's find the truth. And now he's doing the same thing in the area of marriage and what happens inside of a marriage. And he said, this is what you're hearing, but how accurate is that? So that's what he's saying. So for those of you who are thinking, man, I don't want to go to this church because this is going to ruin my marriage. Now, that's not what he's saying. Uh, so he says, he says, you know, yes, you hear that, and, and it is partially true, but there's some context behind that. And so let's find out what that context is. And so then Paul begins to talk about specific boundaries and attitudes and guidelines for a sexual relationship within a marriage. Chapter 6, he talked about what are the guidelines outside of marriage. Now he's talking about what are the guidelines inside of a marriage, which is for for most of us in this room or online, that's who we are. We're, we're talking about that. Um, uh, but he says, I'm going to share some guidelines with you, but there's some bigger issues that he also wants to deal with. There are some issues that, that are, come into to context of not only the, the marital relationship, but really almost every relationship that we have. And he wants, he wants us to understand that. Now, I mentioned previously in messages throughout this series uh, going through 1 Corinthians that um, the, our objective is to take the words that Paul wrote you know, 2,000 years ago to the Corinthian church um, that address unique sets of circumstances and, and we take those words that he wrote and we put them in context of what he was writing about and then with the help of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom that he gives to us, we want to take those and apply them to our lives and our context as well. And, and God wants us to do that and so that's what we're doing here today. Um, and so, so when, when some people read these words of Paul, um, they, they suggested that Paul didn't have a very high opinion of marriage, that he didn't like uh, marriage. Uh, we're not sure whether he was married or not. He never says, the Bible never says whether Paul was married. And a lot of people say, well, he was never married because look at the things he wrote. Who would want to marry him? If, if that's what he, what he said about marriage. And, and so um, today, though, um, we think about marriage as finding one soulmate, don't we? And you hang around with them for 50 years and, and longer. And, you know, and that's, and, and that's an important part of marriage, but that's not necessarily all that Paul is talking about. In fact, in the, Greco, the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day, Marriage was not so much finding a soulmate. That didn't even come up in the conversation. Marriage was a transaction. It was, it was a matter of functional, functional convenience, if you will. But it really had nothing to do with, with whether there was a soulmate 
issue in there or anything. Um, and Paul's words on the surface may seem to reflect that type of an attitude, that if this is just a transaction. Um, and, and so we got to remember that what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 7 is not all that he says about marriage. We go over to Ephesians, and he talks about marriage not being a transaction, not being transactional or convenience. He talks about marriage as reflecting the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And it's a very spiritual relationship. And so Paul has a very high estimation of marriage, much higher than the world that he lived in at that time. And so he compares marriage to that sacred, sacred relationship with Christ. And, and so um, it was never a mere transaction to him. But at the same time, being a very practical in nature guy, Paul knew that following some clearly set guidelines when it came to marriage and the sexuality part of marriage, if, if we followed some clear guidelines from God, that it would be very helpful. It would be helpful to the marriage. It would be helpful to those who were in it. It would be helpful to society. And so he begins to share what those are. And, and, he, and he addresses uh, this topic because, as we've seen earlier, there were a number of factions in the Corinthian church. They weren't always of one mind. They, they, had, some, they had some real... Uh, disagreements on a lot of different issues and this is one of those issues where they have some some real dis disagreement there were those who were very libertarian who, who anything goes and there were those who are very strict who were who were very fundamental um, and and who were very legalistic in their understanding of things that were going on and it looked like those on, on the legalism side came up with some unreasonably strict guidelines for marriage. And they expected everyone to follow them, especially when it came to rules about sex within marriage. And not only did they teach sex outside of marriage was a sin, um, which, which of course is a biblical perspective, they also taught that even within marriage it was better to abstain from sexuality in the marriage. And, and you wonder, you know, where did they get that? Why would they abstain from all, all that, any kind of, of intimacy? And, and the, the reality is, wherever they got it, they didn't get it from the Bible. That was not a biblical teaching. And so Paul is writing back to them saying, what you're teaching is unbiblical. What you're trying to do is unbiblical. So let's look at what is biblical. Let's look at what God does say about that. And so there were married couples who literally had abandoned uh, this essential element of the marital reunion. They weren't having any, any kind of a sexual encounter with their, partners, their married partner at all. At one time they had, then they came to church, and then they figure out, well, I'm not supposed to do that anymore, and so they quit. And, and they, were, they were struggling with that. It was creating conflict, with, obviously, and putting undue stress on, on one partner or the other in that marriage relationship. And then there were others who took it a step further, who, who said, we are getting married, but we will never consummate our marriage. 
And so we'll live in the same house, we'll even try sleeping in the same bed, but we will never be sexually intimate. And you can imagine the struggles that came with that in their marriage. And as far as permanently abstaining from all intimacy within the marital relationship, Paul is going to say it's not a good idea. And some of you are saying, oh, good, I'm glad to hear that. It's not a good idea to abstain in the marriage. But many in the church and in the culture that Paul was dealing with tended to gravitate to one side or the other. That was where the problem was. We saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 6 that there were those who said that you can do anything you want in your body because your body doesn't matter. Your body doesn't matter to God. God just gave you this body, good, bad, or indifferent, so that it can hold your spirit and your soul. And your spirit and soul is all that matters. So whatever you do in your body doesn't affect anything. Doesn't change who you are. Doesn't change your spirituality. Doesn't, so, so you can indulge in any kind of sin that you want to. But now there's another group who has said, no, you're right, the body doesn't mount anything. It's a shell, and it does contain our spirit and our soul. But because of that, we should abstain from anything that gratifies our body. One side said, I can do whatever I want that gratifies my body, and I can still be right with God. The other side said, I don't want to do anything that gratifies my body so that I'll be right with God. And so you had this Gnostic form, form of, of religion that says, you know what, the body doesn't matter. God only cares about my soul. The other side who is very aesthetic, and, and so you have asceticism, and they said, we're not going to do anything. And that's why you had, you had people, uh, monks and others, who would live starvation diet, uh, a star on a star starvation diet all the time until they died. They would, they would try to sleep standing up because would that be pleasurable? You ever try to do that? Not on purpose, unless you're in the Marine Corps and they wouldn't let you sit down. But other than that, you'd just fall over. But you'd, you'd say, but that would be pleasing. My body would feel good. It would enjoy laying down, so I'll just stand up. Or they would, they would live on a pole 15 feet above the world because they didn't want to be tainted by the world, but they didn't want their body to enjoy being untainted by the world, and so they would live on a pole, and, and people would hoist food up to them every once in a while so they could stay alive. Um, and that was how they lived. And so that's the world Paul's talking to. These are people who are trying to figure out what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to, to have a soul and a spirit that, that Jesus died for, but somehow to glorify him and to live in a marriage relationship at the same time. And putting all those things together was just getting to be a real problem with these people. So Paul says, in effect, marriage of, of this kind of extremism just doesn't work. He says instead that a husband and a wife should tend to one another's needs 
physically and not deny one another. Unless you do that by mutual agreement and then only for a very short time. It is, it is a time of, of within reason um, and then they should resume that intimate relationship. And that's what it all boils down to. That's his teaching in chapter 7 here. And, and now the remainder of this, of, of this sermon uh, that I have left that Barb's given me the time to preach And she's going like this, real short. Could just be a sermon on sex. And I really was tempted to do that. However, um, today I want to look at the big picture guidelines that he's he's laying out. Paul said, I want you to understand that God is concerned about, um, about your marriage He loves married people. And he said, the guidelines, though, that I have for you go far beyond just your marriage. They go beyond um, just the rules for sex within marriage. They are guidelines that, that regulate or will help us regulate every aspect of our marriage. And not just of our marriage, but also to our family relationships, to our work relationships, to our neighbor relationships, to any relationships that we have. And so he said, I want to share these things with you. And, and so even um, in, in all kinds of other relationships, these guidelines can be applied. But mainly we're talking today, uh, obviously, about husbands and wives and how they relate to one another. So in the time I have left, I want to share these three big picture guidelines that Paul gives us that will benefit every area of marriage, but also pretty much every other relationship that you have as well. And so even if you're not married today, these are still guidelines that you need to put into practice. Maybe you're dating, maybe you're seeing somebody, maybe you're, you're not, maybe you're just single, or, or maybe you're married but you'll have you know, work relationships or whatever it may be, you can apply these there as well. So in our time together that we have left, let's look at these three big picture guidelines that he shares. The first one is this. Guideline number one is make it your priority, look after the needs of the other. Make it your priority. Look after the needs of the other. In verse 3, this is what he says. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. And then he goes on to say in the first part of verse 4, he said, the wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. And, and, And now, of course, that would have been the prevailing reality in Paul's day. That was, that was the Greek and Roman view of, of marriage um, and uh, in the prevailing non-Christian world that they lived in because women, for the most part, were not considered soulmates or helpmates or co-equals. Women were considered possessions. That's the world that these people lived in. You had a wife, she was your possession, you're the man, you're the king of the castle. And so you just have all the say and you, your word is final no matter what. Amen, shut the Bible, let's go. 
That was their world. And so Paul starts to turn things upside down because he says, this is the world that you live in, but I want to change it a little bit. And so he turns the tables a little bit and he says something quite unexpected. In the second half of verse 4, he goes on to say, in the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Nobody outside of the Christian church in Paul's day believed that. Nobody would even consider that. Nobody would even say such a dumb thing as that. Because how can the man be the king of the castle and be in control of everything and yet his wife is in control of his body? And so Paul just turns their world upside down. He puts them on a co-equal ground. Husband and wife, co-equals. And the, this principle, this guideline can be applied to more than just the physical part of marriage. In fact, it should be applied to every aspect of a marriage. A husband's attitude should be, it's my job to look after your needs, all of them. And for a wife to say, it's my job to look after all of your needs, all of them. So, when you need a hand to hold, I'll give you mine. When you need to pour out your heart about problems you're having without being cut off in mid-sentence, without being told the obvious answer of how to fix a problem, when you just need to talk it out and you need someone to put down their phone, mute the TV, stop yawning, and listen to what you say, I'm here. I'll do that. When you need a shoulder to massage that's really a, soul, a shoulder massage, I'm here to do that for you. When you want to go clothes shopping, but you don't want to go alone, I'll go along. I promise not to pout. I promise not to sigh out loud. I promise not to keep asking, how much does that cost? I'm here. Here's the truth we need to understand. Every aspect of marriage needs to be approached with a you-first mindset. Sweetheart, your needs are first. Honey, your needs are first. Mine come in somewhere later on down the line. But yours are always going to be first. And Paul was talking to all believers when he told us in Galatians 5.13, serve one another in love. 
That's serving one another in love. A me-first attitude does not. A you-first attitude does. So serve one another in love. In other words, in Galatians, um, he applies that to friendships. Uh, and, and more than doubly applies when it comes to your marriage. We need to be willing to serve one another in love. And obviously that works best when the re- arrangement is reciprocal. But you know what? It's not always going to be reciprocal. And so you need to be the one who says, whether it's reciprocal or not, I am going to serve you in love. I am going to serve you with a you-first attitude. That's going to be the mentality, the mindset that I'm going to go through marriage with. And I'll go out on a limb, if you will, to bring it back to the sexuality. I think that, that most couples who live with a you-first mentality or mindset find themselves more satisfied in their marriage relationship in every way, including sexually, than any other couple. Because that's God's plan. That's God's plan for a marriage. And when we're living according to his plan, it's going to work out so much better. And it's going to be so much more pleasing if we do. So look for ways to say, you first. You first. No matter what, you first. And make it your priority to look after the needs of the other. Second guideline that he says, this big picture guideline, not only look after the needs of the other, but remember the importance of me time. So well, that sounds just the opposite of what you just said. It's not just the opposite. It goes along hand in hand with what I just said about putting the needs of the other first. But you have to remember the importance of me time. Paul says it this way in verse 5. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves in prayer or to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So again, he's talking about that couple's intimate life, but but I have to believe that this guideline covers the entirety of the relationship. He said there are times when there needs to be time when you give your spouse a little bit of space. Will will you, you take a little space for yourself? Why would you do that? you would take that to focus on your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. There are times when you just simply need to get alone with Jesus. Where you need to have that quiet time, where you need a time where he can talk to you and you can listen to him. And it gives you an opportunity to think about that personal relationship with God, your personal walk with God, uh, your personal commitment to holiness, and it gives the opportunity to think through your priorities and to evaluate your progress. And sometimes you just need a little bit of time to do that. And so you need to remember how important that is because you cannot be the husband or you cannot be the wife that you need to be if you don't have that right relationship going with God. 
if you don't have that right relationship with Jesus Christ in your life, nothing is going to work the way that it should. And so that's why taking that me time is so important. That time alone with God time, as often as you need it, not to the extent that you ignore your spouse and you don't have anything to do with them, or you ignore your family, but to the extent that you empower yourself to be the greater blessing to your spouse and family by being right with Jesus Christ every day. And so taking me time is important, but even more important perhaps is that you help your spouse find the time and take the time they need to recharge their spiritual batteries. To not intrude on that time, to not get mad about that time, but to give your blessing to that time in their lives. And it could be simply, just as simple as saying something like, like, I'll make sure no one bothers you for the next four hours. And you can have that time alone. And when you're done, I'll take you out to dinner. Because you're not going to have time to cook my dinner. Because most of those guys say, hey, you can't have that time because you've got to be fixing my dinner. And that's, that's a reality that most women live with. And it should not be. There ought to be that time when they can have a little bit of time with God. And that means giving your blessing for your spouse to spend a, even a day or two alone. Heard about a, a Christian lady who said that she attended a women's retreat. Finally got to go to retreat at her church. But she couldn't enjoy herself because her husband, who happened to be a church staff member, kept calling her all the time. That's not empowering your spouse. That's stealing that time away from your spouse with Jesus. So not only do you need to take time for yourself to focus on your spiritual priorities, you need to give your spouse that same blessing. Let them have some time alone with Jesus. And thirdly, the third guideline to follow is commit to finding a way to make it work. And this may be the hardest one of all. Finding a way to make it work. Finding a way to say, we're not going to get divorced. We're not giving in. We don't know how we're going to get there right now, but we're going to get there. How do we find a way to make it work? I read about a man who was divorced who said every day of his life now he asked himself what would have happened if he just tried a little harder and stayed just a little longer. His marriage had a lot of problems and he had a lot of reasons to get legitimate reasons for a divorce. But still he said if I had just worked a little longer could it have changed and he lives with that regret and he will for the rest of his life Paul said it this way in verse 10 and 11 to the married I give this command and not I but the, but, but the Lord a wife must not separate from her husband but if she does she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband must not divorce his wife. 
And then he goes on to say that if a man is married to a non-believing wife or a woman is married to a non-believing husband, what do you do then? How do you reconcile that? Probably should have never happened to start with, but now that's the reality that you have. So how do you deal with that reality? Paul has a very simple answer. As a Christian, if you're married to a non-believer, stay married to them. You don't have freedom to divorce. You just stay married to them. Say, so, well, I'm not happy now. You chose it. God didn't make you be married to them. But you did, so now you stay married. The only way you get out of that is if they say they're leaving. And they divorce you. Otherwise, you stay married. So what are you going to do when you stay married? figure out a way to make it work. And it's going to be hard work. And said sometimes that unbelieving partner finds sanctification from living with you as a Christian. That the children in that relationship can become holy by living in a household where mom or dad is the Christian and the other is not. Now, is he saying that, 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 that they're made holy and they are made sanctified? I don't know. Let's go to verse 14. He says, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. So what does that mean? He's not saying the unbeliever is now saved. God doesn't change the rules for how somebody gets saved, how someone becomes a Christian. You're not born a Christian. You're not made to be a Christian through baptism. You're not made to be a Christian because mom or dad was a Christian. You become a Christian because you trust Jesus Christ to be your Savior. You confess your sin, your need of a Savior, and you repent. And in faith, you trust Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord. And that's the only way you become a Christian. Same thing is true for your children. However, he says, they're not sanctified in the sense that we're that, that being made holy. It is that instead, they might benefit from your influence in their lives that because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, prayerfully they will choose to, to trust Jesus Christ to be Savior and Lord. And that's the same thing that happens with all of our kids. They're not saved because mom or dad are Baptists. They're not saved because mom or dad are, are, are in the church or dad's a pastor. None of that. They are saved because maybe the influence leads them to Jesus Christ but they still have to trust Jesus to be their savior. Too many times when a spouse wants to talk about difficulties in their marriage, the response that they get is something along the lines of, 
you know what? That sounds like a you problem. That's not a me problem. Go figure it out on your own. Paul said, that needs to be thrown into the trash can. He said, the right response is something different. When you're, as a spouse, you say, that's your problem, I ain't changing. You're the problem. Paul said, never be the problem. You might want to write this down. I didn't have room to get it in your sermon notes. In marriage, there is no you problem or me problem. It always comes down to a we problem. It doesn't matter whether the wife or the husband. If there's a problem, it's both of yours. It has to be. It's the only way that it will work. A family can't thrive if one of the partners is perpetually running on empty. If they're the one doing all the work and nobody else is trying, they're going to run out of gas. And some of you have been there. Maybe you're there right now. It has to be a we problem. And your job in marriage is to, to tend to the needs of the other as best as you can. To make every effort to work out each difficult situation as best as you can way back in 800 BC 2800 2900 years ago the Greek poet Homer said this he said there is nothing more noble or admirable than when two people who see eye to eye keep house as man and wife confounding their enemies and delighting their friends You know what? In almost 3,000 years since Homer lived, nothing's changed. That's still the same truth. It still applies today. Being happily married remains as noteworthy as ever because it's so unusual. It is just so unusual. Paul brings this section to a close by saying in verse 15, God has called us to live in peace. He's called us to live in peace. Those words also echo the words that he wrote to the church in Rome. In Romans 12, 18, he says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. God's desire is that in your relationships with your spouse that you live at peace, that in your family that you live in peace. That's what he's looking for. He says that's what's going to be appropriate. That's what's going to benefit you the most. And it must be the top priority in all that we do. If Paul's words apply to our relationships with one another in the church, then they doubly apply again in our marriages. So let's make peace a priority in our marriages and in everything. So I want to give you a challenge as we leave this morning. A challenge that I want you to give yourself 
I want you to be the one who says. You got it? I will be the one who says. I will not be the reason there is unresolved conflict in this family. I'm not going to be that reason. If, there, if it goes unresolved, it won't be because of me. Because I'm going to strive to live at peace. I want you to be the one that says, I will consider your needs first, and I will make every effort to live in peace. Because I'm probably going to have to make myself be peace, at peace with that. Making your needs first all the time. Be the one to say, together we can confound the critics and delight our friends. Wouldn't that be nice? I don't know how they do that across the street. They love each other and they're always together. I can't stand my spouse. I don't understand. Give them a reason not to understand. And then when they ask you to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done in your life and in your marriage. Be the one who says, together we can bring glory to God in our marriage where we have placed him first above all else. You want to glorify God? Glorify him in your marriage. Glorify him in your family. And he'll be pleased. So may your marriage confound the critics, delight your friends, and bring glory to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning that you're a God of peace, that you're a God of love, and that you share that peace and love with us as we share it with others. Let that start in our marriages, in our families, with our close friends, in our church. And Father, we'll give you glory and praise for all you're going to do. Pray for that one or those who maybe are here today in this room or maybe they're watching online with us. And they've never come to know Jesus as Savior. Well, I'm going to go to heaven because my daddy was a Christian. My daddy was a deacon. My granddaddy was a pastor. I'm going to go to heaven because my mother was a godly person. Father, today, let them understand that the only criteria for entrance into heaven, the only one that is accepted, is to have trusted Jesus Christ to be your own personal Lord and Savior. Father, we pray today, if there's one who needs to make that decision, that they would do so. Even right where they're at right now, that they would confess their need of a Savior confess their sin they'll tell Jesus that they'll turn from that that they're going to repent and walk with him thank you for the salvation that he provides because of his work on the cross thank you that he paid the price for our sins there and he rose again to give us victory over those sins now father Speak to our hearts. Speak to the decisions that we need to make. Give us the courage.
to make those right decisions. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If God's speaking to you and you want to make a choice for him, or you want to pray with someone, you come as we sing. Thank you for joining us today for Faith Point. Reach us online at firstsouthernpv.org or stop by to worship with us if you are in the Prescott Valley area. May God richly bless you today as you allow your faith to intersect with your life.